First, the colours. Then, the humans. That's usually how I see things, or at least how I try. Here is a small fact. You are going to die. That is what us teachers like to call a sizzling start. <laughs> if you know me even a little bit, you'll know that I'm Beck and I'm a pretty passionate primary school teacher. And one of the things that I get to do in my job is I get to help students to think about how they might begin their writing endeavours. And one of the things that I really strongly discourage is starting stories with things like, one day I, or hi, my name is, because when you're starting a story, I really encourage students to launch straight into the action, to begin with dialogue or descriptive language. Why? Because it is so important. If you want your audience to keep listening or to keep reading, to grab their attention in your first few lines. I wonder if you've ever been tasked with the role of giving a presentation, maybe at work or at school, or maybe you've just recently had to write an essay in an exam, and you've really carefully considered how you will begin. Well, there are four brave men who took on the challenge of writing down one of the most important real-life stories, the story of Jesus. And these written recounts, of Jesus' life are often referred to as Gospels, and they're named after their authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Gospel means good story or good news. And I think good is possibly a bit of an understatement because often today, good kind of just means average. But this story is far from average. It's a remarkable story that tells us about God who in all of his goodness decided to come down to earth in the person of Jesus so that we might know and experience what God is like. It's a life-giving story because it tells us how God is in the business of restoring broken things. And it's a promising story because it doesn't tell of a distant God, but it tells us of God with us. So how do these four men decide to begin their written recounts? of this incredible, important story. Sizzling starts or not? Let's take a look. Mark, he begins his gospel. He begins by launching straight in, by introducing John the Baptist and then quickly going on to share some of the important events in Jesus' adult life. There's no fluffing around here. He just gets straight into it. I reckon. Sizzling start. Luke begins his gospel by justifying the validity and the truth of his recount. Uh, carefully, sequentially, he goes on then to recount the events both related to John the Baptist's birth and to Jesus' birth. And maybe, maybe not everyone would be hooked on this beginning, but maybe for the more critical, like, academic audience, they'd reckon this was a sizzling start. Perhaps my favourite is in John. John begins his gospel with this sort of 
potentially sometimes confusing, but amazing prologue, which recognises Jesus as God. And then um, it sort of talks about how he's always existed, but how he took on human form to make his home among us. Like Mark, John also does not record the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. He just gets straight into the action. I reckon sizzling start. And then we come to Matthew, from where we're going to be reading today. Um, If you'd like to uh, join in reading today, we're joining it just in Matthew chapter 1. You can read in your Bible or on the Bible app. Let's take a look. This is how Matthew begins. The ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. And I'm going to stop there (laughs) because Matthew goes on to list 42 generations of people from Jesus's family tree. We call it a genealogy. And if you're anything like me, when you open up the book of Matthew and you have a little look at chapter 1, you skip the first 17 verses and go straight to verse 18 because that's where the story really starts. Because there is very little appeal in reading a really long list of sometimes difficult to pronounce names of people from Jesus' family tree. Now, in many societies, tracing one's family pedigree is regarded as, like, enormously important. But in our Western culture, where equality is perhaps more cherished, tracing your family roots does little more than potentially provide you a a sense of identity. Now, I have a book here. I'm probably not going to be able to hold it up properly with one hand. But this book here has some details of my family tree. These are some pictures of my great, great, great grandparents. And while this might be a little bit interesting to me, I actually probably wouldn't expect any of you here in this room to be remotely interested in this book because I don't expect you to care about who my ancestors were. So it begs the question, why when tasked with the role of recounting this incredible story, did Matthew choose to begin like this? Why go to the effort of listing 42 generations of people from Jesus' family tree? Who are all these people? Why are they so important? Well, that's what we're going to think about today. Matthew begins by naming... Jesus as Messiah. And then he identifies two key figures in the family tree, David and Abraham. Now we find the story, for those visual people, we find the story of Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, just after the story of Noah and the Tower of Babel. And Abraham is described as a man who loved God and who obeyed God when God actually told him to leave his country, his relatives, his father's house, and to go to the land that God would show him. God made some pretty big promises 
to Abraham. And we find them in Genesis 12. Sometimes these promises are even referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, it says this. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who will bless you and I will curse those who will treat you with contempt and all of the families on earth will be blessed through you. He made other promises too though. In chapter 15, the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And then in chapter 17, he says, I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. And this is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. They're pretty great promises, hey? Promises of blessing, fame, land, descendants too numerous to count with kings among them. Promises of God's faithfulness forever. And in many respects, this is the beginning of the big Jewish story. And these are the promises that the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, they held on to in some of their darkest days. And they had some pretty dark days. We read in Genesis about how eventually, in God's timing, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they did have a son. And they named him Isaac. And Isaac then had a son named Jacob, whose name was later changed, and he became known as Israel. And this is the beginning of the numerous descendants, the nation of Israel that was promised to eventually bless all of the peoples of the earth. But God did promise that there would be kings among Abraham's descendants, and neither Isaac nor Jacob were kings. You have to actually trace the family tree through numerous generations before you get down here to David and to Solomon. Now, you might remember David was that brave little shepherd boy who took on Goliath. And he actually went on to be chosen as the king of the nation of Israel. And David had a son named Solomon, who was a hugely prosperous king. In 2 Samuel, we read about a time when David was planning on building this big temple for God. And um, God spoke to him through a prophet called Nathan. And he said, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I, and I will secure his royal throne forever. God promised David a descendant who would build a temple for his name and who would secure the royal throne forever. And while Solomon did build a really extravagant temple, the royal throne actually was not secure. In fact, after the time of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided. You can see here, it was divided into two kingdoms before being exiled by the Babylonians. And then most of the time after the exile, Israel did not have a functional monarchy at all. 
And the kings and queens in the 200 years prior to Jesus' birth were not even from David's family. The current ruler, Herod the Great, he was just an opportunistic military commander who'd been given his position by the Romans. And so, whilst this may appear, appear to us to be a little bit boring... Matthew, in his first sentence, is actually making a really bold political statement. We've been talking these last few weeks about how we might be appropriately loud followers of Jesus. And Matthew's being loud here. He dares to boast that Jesus is actually part of the true royal family that his birth is the fulfilment of the covenant with Abraham and with David. It's not something that you'd want Herod's spies to overhear you saying. But on Jesus' behalf, Matthew sets out to begin his story of great news by clearly articulating that the birth of Jesus is what Israel had been waiting for for 2,000 years. For many cultures, and certainly within the context of the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this family tree was the equivalent of a roll of the drums and a fanfare of trumpets and a town crier calling for attention. Matthew is determined to be the herald for Jesus. To be a herald is to be like an official messenger or an announcer, or one who actively promotes or advocates. And when you read about the stories of the birth of Jesus in the Bible, you'll read stories about how angels appeared to a bunch of shepherds and they announced the birth of Jesus and they praised God. These angels acted as heralds of the birth of Jesus. And you'll also read about how the wise men, they followed a new star and the star was there to herald the newborn king of the Jews. And in a similar way here, as Matthew recalls the life of Jesus, he begins by bravely speaking out, by acting to announce and promote and activate something that he knew to be true, that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the promised king. The Jews had been waiting for since God had made those promises to Abraham all of those generations ago. And so as Matthew seeks to herald Jesus, he decides that using this genealogy is the best way to do so because it discloses some really important information about Jesus's identity. I guess much in the same way that maybe a high quality CV would do for us when applying for a job in our modern world. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling and potentially unlike us, their attention would peak as Matthew goes on to list all these generations of names and like a procession, they would watch the figures at the front, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and then the ones in the middle, Boaz, Obed, David, Solomon. And then all eyes would really be waiting for the one who comes at the end, who's in the position of greatest honour, Jesus. And perhaps 
maybe you might expect that these generations of people whom God chose to weave his story of hope and faithfulness through, that these people, their life stories would be filled with testimonies of upright living and of strong character. But as I've dug into the details of their lives, this is what I've found. <laughs> Let's start with Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old when God promised to give him all those descendants. And at the time, he didn't have any kids. And he and his wife, Sarah, had pretty much given up hope. And Abraham's story, it is one of faith and of trust. But if you delve into the details of his story, you'll find that it had its fair share of lying, adultery and doubt thrown in. Abraham's son Isaac, he pleaded with God to give his wife Rebecca a child because they were childless. And just as his parents had done before him, Isaac and Rebecca, they experienced the despair of being unable to have a child. But God answered Isaac's prayer and Rebecca had twins. Jacob and Esau. And they grew up to be best mates and to do everything together, right? No, wrong. In fact, Jacob and Esau, they grew up to hate each other. And determining who got the birthright in that family was a complete mess of deception in that household. Now, after Jacob deceptively got Isaac's blessing, he moved away from home where he fell in love with a girl named Rachel. And in order to be able to marry her, he had to work for her father for seven years, which he did. And on the day of his wedding, he was tricked into marrying the wrong girl, Rachel's sister, Leah. Imagine the disappointment and the anger that he must have felt and the rejection that Leah must have felt with her new husband's clear disappointment. Jacob then worked for another seven years, a total of 14 years, to marry Rachel. Wild. And then he had a lot of kids to four different women. And his parenting skills could form the foundation of a book of what not to do. Jacob had a clear favourite child, Joseph which causes immense jealousy amongst his brothers to the point that Joseph's, Joseph's brothers actually planned to kill him. Except one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, he convinced them that it would be better just to sell him instead. This same Judah, just after the story of Joseph, he moves away and he has two sons, Ur and Onan. But if you take a look in Matthew 1, you'll notice that these are not the sons who are listed in the genealogy because they both died before they'd had any children, leaving behind their childless widow, Tamar. Now, although Judah, he had a responsibility to care for his daughter-in-law, Tamar, he had no intention of doing so. 
and in a series of fairly awful and deceptive events, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and becomes pregnant with Judah's sons. And these are the sons that are listed in the genealogy. What a mess. Fast forward a few generations and in verse 5 you get to Boaz. And Boaz was the son of the Jericho prostitute, Rahab. You can read about Rahab at the beginning of the book of Joshua. She lived in the land of Jericho and her chosen profession as a prostitute gives you a bit of an insight into what her life was like. But Rahab, she actually feared God and she identified the God of Israel as being the supreme God of the heavens and the earth. And because of her faith, Rahab, she made the courageous decision to hide some of Joshua's spies as they scoped out the land that, um, that God had promised them. And she was rewarded for her courage by having her safety guaranteed. Here we are reading about her in Jesus' family tree. Rahab has had a son named Boaz, Boaz and Boaz ma- married Ruth. Ruth was a woman who was born a Moabite, one of Israel's most treacherous enemies. But like Rahab, Ruth, although she did not grow up in a family who feared God or knew God, she actually came to know him and to love him and to accept him as her own God. Jump forward to David the great king, to whom God made all these promises of a future king who would rule over the whole world. David was a legendary poet and successful in building an empire. And David's son listed here, Solomon, he was born of Bathsheba. And although Bathsheba, she was actually married to Uriah, while Uriah was away fighting in David's army, Bathsheba and Um, David, they committed adultery. And David, he then attempted to cover up his wrongdoings by ultimately concocting a plan to ensure that Uriah was killed during battle. Their son, Solomon, yes, he was prosperous, but he was a world-class womanizer who eventually turned away from God. How very human are all of these people in Jesus' family tree? Yet in the mixture of their failings and their faithfulness, in all their mess and brokenness, God used this collection of people to lead to Jesus. And here is Matthew using their lives to herald Jesus. These past few weeks, we've been talking about being loud. And as followers of Jesus here at New Community, we are consistently asking ourselves the question, what does it look like for us to posture ourselves, to express our convictions, to be quietly loud? I was at the physio the other day with my Louie. And normally at at the end, he gets to choose a sticker or a stamp before we go home. But over the past few weeks, the dinosaur stickers have remained firmly tucked away in the drawer. And instead, the star stamp has come out. 
And as the physio presses this star into the squishy skin on the back of his hand, she says, we look for the star because it leads to Jesus. The first time she did it, I was a bit taken aback. Not because I didn't like what she said, but because I just didn't expect somebody to speak so openly about Jesus at Christmas time. I sat with a friend at the school Christmas carols the other night and our ears pricked up during one of the songs. Was, was that mention of, of Jesus that we heard in that carol? Would they let that happen? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Probably not. I've got a really big tub at home of nativity costumes generously gifted to us by the kids' kinder because they have no need for them anymore. There is no nativity play at the end of your Christmas concert. And so Christmas is always almost here and these past few weeks I've been to my fair share of end of year Christmas parties and concerts and gatherings and there's been a lot of talk about the much needed holiday and everyone's complicated plans to see family at Christmas time but I've begun to realise how little attention is given to Jesus at Christmas and it's easy to feel a little sad about this but I've been thinking about how this genealogy in Matthew it shows how God's story is faithfully woven through the lives of some very human imperfect people people like you and me people who at times were full of doubt and they cried out to God in despair people who at times felt broken forgotten oppressed mistreated isolated and misled people who made big errors of judgment who did wrong who deceived others who were arrogant and unfaithful and I've been thinking about how God's story through these people it leads to Jesus and God's reminded me that as followers of Jesus it's God's story through us that leads to Jesus. That in our exhaustion, our stress, our doubt, our failings and our flaws, our very, very humanness, God chooses us to faithfully weave his story and to herald Jesus. One day when Jesus was teaching, he went up to a mountainside with his disciples. And one of the things that he said was this. He said, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. You see, it's God's plan for us to be light in dark places, to herald Jesus. In 2 Peter, Peter gives us some idea of what this might look like. He says, devote yourselves to lavishly supplementing your faith with goodness and to goodness add understanding and to understanding add the strength of self-control and to self-control add patient endurance and to patient endurance 
add godliness. And to godliness, add mercy toward your brothers and sisters. And to mercy toward others, add unending love. When we live like this, we bring light to dark places. And our stories, our lives, they point to Jesus. wonder if as the music plays right now, whether you might actually take a moment to consider how your life might change if you were to devote yourself to these things. If you intentionally set out each day to pursue Jesus, to herald Jesus, heads up. I don't think it looks like reading the genealogy from a street corner. But for Louis Physio, it looks like a star stamp and a beautifully gentle reminder to remember Jesus at Christmas. And for my, my auntie, it looks like a laminated piece of paper given to all of her great nieces and nephews with the story of Jesus and a prize for anyone who can call her before Christmas with the words memorised by heart. Perhaps for you, it looks like refraining from gossip at the Christmas party. Or maybe you play the role of peacemaker in your mess of a family on Christmas Day. Perhaps it means sharing a smile with someone who's caused you grief or offering mercy to someone who has hurt you deeply. Perhaps it means creating an extra space at your table this Christmas or giving generously. Or you might need to put down your list of jobs, of things to do so that you can stop and be present with people because God has chosen us to live lives that announce the goodness of Jesus, lives that push back darkness and bring light. God's story through us, through you, it leads to Jesus. And so what will that look like for you to herald Jesus and to live loud this Christmas? Would you join us as we sing together?